Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Lawyers for Hunter Biden have an upcoming date with the Justice Department. The lead starts right now. New questions for Attorney General Merrick Garland and his role in the Hunter Biden probe as an IRS agent trying to get whistleblower protection. Claims he has information that contradicts the Attorney General's sworn testimony. This as Hunter Biden's lawyers book a sit-down with prosecutors. Plus, as the nation waits to hear if the U.S. Supreme Court will keep a partial ban on an abortion bill hill in place, Canada is now offering American women and girls access to the pill from north of the border. And an American killed as a volatile, volatile situation in Sudan gets even worse. The U.S. is now deploying troops nearby ready to evacuate its embassy as other countries are going in to pull their citizens out. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our health lead. Any moment the U.S. Supreme Court could rule on the most critical abortion case since it overturned Roe v. Wade last year. The justices have until 11.59 p.m. Eastern this evening to decide the future of the widely used abortion pill, Mifepristone. The bill is currently available, though a Texas judge moved to block the medication's approval, and an appeals court headquartered in Louisiana decided to impose tough restrictions on how that medication can be accessed, at what point during a pregnancy it can be available, and who is allowed to prescribe it. The high court now has to decide if any of that will stand. Let's get straight to CNN's Jessica Schneider. And Jessica, what options does the Supreme Court have here, and when are they going to let us know what they've decided? Lots of the big question, Jake. When? Um, there are a number of options as these justices face down less than eight hours until their own self-imposed deadline. It's possible they could institute another very short stay, but what's likely here is that all these justices, um, there may be justices, I should say, writing to either concur or dissent from the decision that really could come down at any time. So if they do issue maybe a longer stay or otherwise, there are several options here, including that the Supreme Court could decide to hear this case on the merit before the end of the term. But what's really likely is that the justices will do one of two things. First of all, they could impose that longer term stay, which would put a hold on any restrictions and it would maintain the status quo until this appeals process plays out. Of course, arguments in the Fifth Circuit have already been scheduled in less than a month on May 17th. Or, as the FDA is fearing, the Supreme Court could allow some or all of these restrictions to take effect. That could mean that women beyond seven weeks of pregnancy would not be able to take the drug, even though they can get it right now up to 10 weeks. It could also impose more in-person requirements for seeing a doctor, and it could eliminate the male option to receive this drug. So, Jake, there is a lot at stake here, and it really does seem to be coming down to the wire as we approach midnight. All right, Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. Turning now to a CNN exclusive in our politics lead, attorneys for the president's son, Hunter, will meet with senior Justice Department officials next week to discuss the long-running investigation into Hunter Biden. This coming as CNN has learned that the unnamed senior political appointee that an IRS agent 
involved in the investigation of Hunter Biden claims gave misleading testimony to Congress about the Hunter Biden probe is Attorney General Merrick Garland. That IRS agent is seeking whistleblower protections to share information with Congress about what he or she alleges is mishandling and political interference in that probe. CNN's Paula Reid is digging into this for us. Paula, lawyers for Hunter Biden are scheduled to meet with Justice Department officials next week. That's uh, your scoop right now. Uh, What do we know about that? That's right. And we've learned that this meeting was actually requested by Hunter Biden's legal team in recent weeks. And we're told, uh, as is pretty routine, the Justice Department officials said, sure, come on in. That meeting is scheduled for next week. And we expect that present at that meeting will be at least one top career Justice Department official, as well as the U.S. attorney, Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, who's been overseeing the investigation. Now, there's no indication at this point that this is a final disposition for the case We know from our reporting that over the last year, there hasn't been many developments in this particular case. We know that they had whittled it down to several potential tax crime charges and one possible false statement charge related to the purchase of a gun. But we reported that, as you might remember, last summer. There really haven't been many other developments since. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this meeting. But look, in recent months, we have seen a much more aggressive approach from Hunter Biden's legal team. They have become far more litigious, firing off lawsuits against many people, including Garrett Ziegler, even the owner of a computer repair shop who they allege abused Hunter Biden's laptop. They've become much more aggressive. Even here, you can see seeking an update on the DOJ case when they know it's going to make headlines. And these are these are explosive allegations against the attorney general from this IRS agent. What do we know about the evidence that this agent has Uh, to support these claims. Not much at this point. According to our sources, this individual would testify that he believes Hunter Biden was treated differently inside the IRS in terms of how his tax returns were analyzed. He alleges that this case was mishandled and that there was political interference, which directly contradicts the testimony that the attorney general gave before Congress. But look, at this point, this individual does not have whistleblower protection. And so far, they have not presented any evidence. But that is standard. When you want whistleblower protections, you can't just go and disclose everything. You have to be protected first. But again, there have also been a lot of promises about whistleblowers related to the Biden family that have not come to fruition. So we're waiting to see what they can present. Yeah, we have to wait to see the actual facts uh, first. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Stick around, because uh, I want to go to another CNN exclusive. Damning newly revealed text messages from Trump operatives show that for the first time, in addition to trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia, Trump allies in that state were also strategizing how to decertify the Peach State's two Senate runoffs in 2021, in which Democrats defeated both Trump-backed candidates. CNN's Sarah Murray has the details of this. And Sarah, this plot involved data from a breached Georgia voting machine. Lay Lay it out for us. That's right. I mean, this is in mid-January 2021. There are these two operatives who've been hired by Trump's legal team, and they're talking about essentially what you could do with this data from this breached voting machine from a rural county in Georgia. And these are texts my colleague Zach Cohen obtained. So one of the operatives says, here's the plan. Let's keep this close hold. We only have until Saturday to decide if we are going to use this report to try to decertify the Senate runoff election or if we hold it for a bigger moment. Now, this is, of course, significant because we know a lot about the efforts to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election. But this is an indication that there are pro-Trump allies, pro-Trump operatives who are trying to go a step further and attempt to disrupt the Senate runoff, Jake. And this plot, it's, it's part of the criminal investigation into election interference 
investigation led by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. What do we know about that? Exactly. I mean, we know Willis has obtained information about this attempt to try to meddle in the Senate runoff elections or to uh, think about meddling in the Senate runoff elections. And we know she's been looking at the breach in Coffee County as she more broadly looks at election interference as part of this criminal investigation. She's been weighing potential racketeering charges, sort of deciding how many defendants could be in the mix if she does move forward with this case. Could it include folks who were involved in this Coffee County situation? We are, of course, waiting for her to make any announcements about who, if anyone, she's going to charge in this case. Those who'd come as early as this spring, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. CNN's Paula Reed still with me. Also joining us in studio, CNN anchor and senior legal analyst Laura Coates and former Trump White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews to talk about all of this. Laura, so the voting machine plot uh, was being coordinated by Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and other members of Trump's uh, legal team, uh, could this part of the criminal investigation reach Trump as well, do you think? It very well could. Remember, this is all about who knew what and who was directing the operation. If it's something where it was understood, as we've often heard in connection with Donald Trump, it's understood this is what he wanted for us to do, that's not going to hold a lot or carry a lot of water. If it's a matter of directives, though, and here is an actual plot articulated in a way to conspire to commit some nefarious act, that's a whole different ballgame. We've already seen, of course, how text messages have been damaging in other cases involving voting machines as of this week alone. And so this plot continues to thicken. And the more information they have, remember, the special grand jury that was impaneled had subpoena power to get information, to get evidentiary um, you know, evidence in some respects. So this might be a further indication that that is all coming to a head. When is the question? And, and, and Sarah, just a reminder of viewers, you quit in disgust on January 6th. Uh, what's your response to all this? What do you think of it all? I think what's most shocking about those new text messages that we've seen released is that they came after January 6th. So not only were they uh, the Trump allies, you know, trying to co-conspire to um, overturn the election results in the lead up to uh, January 6th, but it was after that they were still trying and not just the 2020 presidential election, but the 2021 uh, Georgia Senate runoff. So I think that uh, it's kind of appalling to me that they, even after the destruction and um, disaster that was January 6th, and death, (laughs) they still were trying to overturn the election results. Pretty pretty remarkable. Let's turn um, uh, to the Hunter Biden story, if we can. Um, The Republican House committee chairs uh, have sent a letter to Secretary of State Antony Blinken asking him to explain uh, his role in that public letter from former intel officials uh, in which they, if you, you have to read the letter carefully, because some of the headlines and what President Biden later said about it is not actually what the letter said. But the letter said uh, that the Russians were certainly part uh, trying to spread this information and it might be disinformation. They weren't really sure. What's the significance of this, do you think, in terms of Secretary Blinken, who at the time was a, a lawyer on the on the Biden campaign? Exactly. Well, it feeds into a larger narrative that Republicans are seizing on right now, which is Hunter Biden, right, is being helped not only by his his father, uh, his close advisors, but also by the larger national security apparatus. And what they would, of course, prefer is a criminal case against Hunter Biden to seize on that. They were hoping that when we reported the case was heating up, 
last summer that there would be charges, but that case has continued to linger. So instead, they're taking it to the court of public opinion. But this letter is in no way as significant as a possible whistleblower who could come out and potentially undermine the handling of the Justice Department's investigation. That would potentially be really like a golden goose for them. But at this point, we have no verification of that individual's allegations. And and what do you make of the fact uh, that Hunter Biden's attorneys are meeting with the Justice Department next week? Paula broke the story, Mm -hmm. notes that it's it was Hunter Biden's attorneys making the request. Mm -hmm. But still, he's been under investigation since 2018, at least. He's probably exhausted from that and the storm cloud that continuously lingers overhead, not to mention there's the political reality of what it's like to have that continue to be there and the talking points that continue to flourish because it has not yet been settled. You know, the idea of a pending litigation or an ongoing investigation, these are phrases that can be your best friend if you are somebody who might benefit from it or your worst enemy if you are the subject matter of it. And so I suspect they're trying to get a handle on the overall timeline, to what extent they need to continue to be nervous, to what extent they need to continue to be proactive in other ways, but it still lingers and the questions are still there. And it is very fair to ask, where is the status of that investigation? But it's not just on Merrick Garland's team as well. It's also out of Delaware. It's also out of the uh, council appointed by Trump as well. And so it is prudent to know the status of that. But I suspect next week's meeting will be very fruitless for these particular litigants. What's your take on the Hunter Biden story? Certainly there was a lot of stuff in that laptop that that turned out to be accurate uh, once people, once media organizations had an opportunity to actually investigate it. Certainly a lot of stuff in there that was kind of gross. Yeah, and I think what is really telling about um, now knowing that Antony Blinken was behind that letter from the intel community that tried to cast this as Russian propaganda and delegitimize the laptop Biden himself um, used that letter from the intel community multiple times and referenced it to try to um, downplay the laptop, say that it was delegitimate, which now we know the the laptop is legitimate. And uh, I think that that's really telling. And I think all of these kind of controversies surrounding his son, coupled with Biden's poor um, approval rating, it's not a recipe for success heading into a 2024 announcement next week. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because the letter was a lot more careful mm-hmm. uh, than, than two things, uh, a lot more circumspect. The letter, was, uh, President Biden, then candidate Biden, overstated what the letter said. Uh, and Natasha Bertrand, who was then with Politico, she wrote a very careful, very accurate story. And then some jabroni at Politico put a headline on it that also was like kind of misleading. Uh, and those two acts by the headline writer at Politico and by Joe Biden overhyped what the intelligence community was actually saying. Though they were saying, be careful of this material, they weren't going as far as, as Biden or that headline. Yeah, it's a seen. forced error. And now they can go back and push this narrative with, with some certainty, right? You were involved in this. You were not being honest. Why should we trust you when you say, for example, he won't be charged? Or maybe this whistleblower doesn't have anything. Again, it's, it's a forced error on a story that I'm sure they wish would go away. It goes to the core, too, of what Congressman Jim Jordan has been saying ever since Speaker McCarthy became Speaker McCarthy. The idea of the weaponization of the government. This is with forced error, but also one of the things that can give greater fodder to that particular claim, although it can be baseless in many respects. But this is going to continue until the American people, a la the committees that want to know the information, actually get it. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens. Let's see what the Justice Department has. Uh, Paul, Laura, Sarah, thanks uh, one and all for being here. Coming up next, a surprise move in the war in Ukraine. How Russia ended up dropping a bomb on one of its own cities. Plus the day in court for men who prosecutors say marched through the streets of, of Charlottesville with the crowd spewing an anti-Semitic chant and more. Why charges are coming now, nearly six years later. Stay with us.
In our world lead, Russia says it accidentally bombed one of its own cities. A Russian warplane dropped a bomb late Thursday on Belgorod, a Russian city home to more than 400,000 people. It's 25 miles north of the Ukrainian border. Miraculously, only two people were injured in the blast. As CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports, the extensive damage left behind is a scene Ukrainians are all too familiar with following Russia's deadly invasion. This kind of destruction has been a common scene throughout Ukraine since the war started, but this time it was in Russia. Residents of the city of Belgorod, close to the border with Ukraine, waking up to damaged buildings and a destroyed road. The culprit? Russia itself. Moscow saying one of its aircraft accidentally struck the city. CCTV footage shows a first impact as the bomb penetrates the ground. Moments later, a large explosion. Residents feeling lucky it wasn't worse. Thank God there are no dead, the Belgorod governor says. While Russia was busy after shooting itself in the foot, Ukraine was meeting with its allies in Germany. Welcome to the 11th meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. NATO and other international partners discussing additional support for Kyiv ahead of a highly anticipated counteroffensive. More than a year later, Ukraine is still standing strong. And our support has not wavered. And I'm proud of the progress that we have made together. But for Ukrainians, that progress has been slow. And while the front has barely shifted in months, the vicious battles keep claiming lives. On Friday, the Odessa Opera announcing the death of one of its performers, artist-turned-soldier Rostislav Yanchishen, killed in battle protecting Ukraine's future, they said. He joined the armed forces on the first day of the war. And when CNN visited last July, he had long left for the front, like many of the dancers there. Those that stayed behind, like Katerina Kalchenko, braving the stage to give Odessa a sense of normalcy. Dancing in defiance, but very much still struggling. I want the whole world to stop this horror so that innocent people and children stop dying, Katerina says. I ask for help and for people not to remain silent. Yet silence is how they began rehearsals this Friday. Amid tears, one minute of silence for one of their own. And today, in the early hours, Russia launched 12 drones at Kyiv. In fact, we could hear some of the blasts uh, from where I'm standing. That was just hours after the Secretary General of NATO came and pledged that Ukraine's future is in NATO. Today, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, accused NATO of taking an aggressive posture toward Russia, treating it as an enemy. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann reporting from Kyiv, Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Coming up. What CNN is learning about an American killed in Sudan as the U.S. weighs if and how to evacuate its embassy as more violence erupts. Our world lead now, an American killed in Sudan. One of more than 400 people killed after seven days of bloodshed in that country, according to the World Health Organization. Innocent lives caught in a war between two men fighting for power, generals of the 
paramilitary rapid support forces and Sudan's armed forces, warring armies, ones that used to share power and even work together to overthrow Sudan's brutal dictator in 2019, but then started fighting. Just a few hours ago, a breakthrough of sorts, Sudan's military finally agreed to a three-day ceasefire to allow the majority Muslim nation a period of peace during the normally joyful celebration of Eid, the end of Ramadan. Now, hope that aid will arrive during this period as people are growing desperate, calling for food, water, medical treatment. Meanwhile, hundreds of American Marines are just across the border at a U.S. base in the Republic of Djibouti, ready to get U.S. Embassy personnel out of Sudan if needed. But still, no plan for the other estimated 16,000 Americans in that country. Let's get right to CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Kylie, what more do we know about this American who was killed? Well, unfortunately, Jake, we really don't know anything about the circumstances surrounding the death of this American. What we do know is that the State Department is in touch with their family. And, of course, this comes as hundreds of Sudanese citizens have died as a result of this outbreak fighting. We are still monitoring and paying close attention to the situation on the ground. A decision has not been made, uh, but I would push back on the notion that we are acting too late. That is certainly not the case. We have, uh, we have been uh, working diligently. Um, obviously, that soundbite was from the State Department spoke, deputy spokesperson earlier today uh, talking about the fact that they don't believe uh, that they are acting too late here to get out the U.S. diplomats who are in the country. Of course, I posed that question to the spokesperson because you'll remember, Jake, it was just a year and a half ago that we were reporting on the State Department scrambling to get out the U.S. diplomats that were in Afghanistan. The White House just recently said that one of the lessons that they learned from that was to prioritize early evacuation when there's a degrading security situation. What the spokesperson for the State Department and the White House is saying is that there's been no decision made to get out those diplomats, to evacuate them at this time. Of course, we're continuing uh, to watch that decision-making. And then, as you noted, there are those 16,000 Americans that are in the country. Of course, many of those are likely Sudanese-American citizens. Uh, But there's no plan to provide assistance to those Americans to get out of the country. Now, the State Department has been telling Americans not to travel uh, to Sudan since the summer of 2021. So that's quite a bit of time here. But what they're saying is that they should be sheltering in place right now and not expecting U.S. support to get out of the country. All right, Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. This afternoon, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Russian private military group, mercenaries known as the Wagner Army, responded to CNN's exclusive reporting, which revealed that Wagner was influencing the conflict in Sudan by providing heavy weaponry to help the paramilitary rapid support forces. CNN's Nima Albagher broke this exclusive reporting on the lead for us, and she joins us again now. Nima, what what does Prigozhin have to say? Well, after ignoring us for a couple of days, he's now calling our reporting an attempt at provocation, saying, let me reiterate once more, Wagner PMC is in no way involved in the Sudanese conflict. Questions from the media about any assistance to General Dagalo or General Al-Burhan or any other individuals in Sudan are nothing more than an attempt at provocation. He also separately released a statement offering, perhaps unhelpfully, to mediate in the conflict between the two generals, Jake. And Nima, a father of five tells CNN that he was forced to skip prayers earlier today and lay on the floor with his children for three hours 
just mm-hmm. to stay safe from all the stray bullets in Sudan's capital, Khartoum. You're from Khartoum. Uh, how unusual yeah. is it to see continued violence like this? This is the first time, really. Um, we uh, Khartoum has been very much um, buttressed from a lot of the instability. First of all, it's a huge country. It's the third largest in Africa. So the capital itself has has been kept um, sterile from a lot of the insecurity of the other regions. It's, um, it's, it's really beautiful. I would say that. It's my hometown. But um, it lies at the meeting of the two Niles, at the meeting of the Blue Nile and the White Nile. And normally on Eid, at this time of year, all of the banks of the Niles would be covered with tables and people with their children and music. Um, and it's really heartbreaking to, to think that this year, all of those beautiful memories that I and my sisters and brother and our friends have along those banks of that river that the children today are yeah, sheltering on the floor with their parents. I, I called my cousin um, a couple of days ago, and that's exactly what she was doing, Jake. She was talking to me on the floor with her children around her. And I can't imagine having to um, survive that with small children. I can't imagine having to survive that at a time of year that is supposed to be um, a, a time for families to come together, for people to be so divided, sheltering in their homes on their own. Um, it, it's really difficult to think about, actually. Yeah. Namal Bagger, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Dr. Mohammed Issa. He's the Secretary General for the Sudanese American Physicians Association. He joins us on the phone from Sudan's capital of Khartoum, where Wi-Fi and cell service are, are rather spotty. Dr. Issa, Sudan's doctors' union says 70% of hospitals in conflict areas are shut down. How dire is the emergency medical situation there? Um, it's extremely dire, and unfortunately, the hospital, the healthcare system might collapse uh, very soon, unfortunately, Jake. Now that there's a, a new ceasefire, um, do, you, do you think aid will be able to reach um, hospitals? Well, uh, we're hearing distant sounds of gunfire here and there, uh, definitely much less than what was happening today. And the previous two attempts for ceasefire were violated, unfortunately. So we'll see how this one goes. But ultimately, if it goes through and everything stays calm, that's going to help restock the hospitals and the medical facilities with supplies that will give the chance for the injured to make it to the hospitals and also for the families to bury the dead. The ceasefire uh, comes uh, along with Eid, uh, the Muslim holiday celebrating the end of Ramadan. The last few ceasefires didn't work. Um, Do you think this one taking place uh, associated with this uh, holy day of Eid, do do you think this could be different? I would hope so. I would hope so, um, Jake. But throughout the day today, which is the first day of Eid, they were we were under attack by all sort of um, guns and heavy machinery, um, uh, fighters and air fighter strikes. So we would hope that for the next two days, the families and the people of Sudan would still be able to celebrate Eid. You told uh, National Public Radio here in the U.S. that this war between these two men and their militaries is affecting, quote, only the innocents. Um, How hopeful are you, if at all, that there could be a peaceful resolution sometime soon, maybe even 
right after the 72-hour ceasefire? We remain extremely hopeful that the ceasefire will happen at some point, particularly after the three days of the ceasefire that was announced um, just tonight. But most importantly here, Jake, is that we need an, um, a lot of attention to the uh, healthcare system situation right now. Dr. Mohamed Issa, thank you so much and best of luck to you. Moments ago, charges were officially dismissed against actor Alec Baldwin. What this development could mean for the movie set Armorer, who is still facing charges. Plus, CNN is in Charlottesville, as men indicated in that 2017 racist anti-Semitic Charlottesville Tiki Torch rally, appeared in court. Why are charges coming nearly six years later? Stay with us. In our national lead, a day in court for two of the men who prosecutors say brazenly carried tiki torches through Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 with those racist and anti-Semitic crowd members chanting, Jews will not replace us, among other vile slogans. You'll recall the next day at the um, Unite the Right rally, 32-year-old Heather Heyer was killed when a, one of the guys from this group drove his car into a crowd it's taken more re- a more recent prosecutor to get a grand jury uh, on this case. This is nearly six years after the fact. That grand jury indicted three men this week. CNN's Brian Todd was at the courthouse today as two of those men appeared before a judge. August 11th, 2017, a menacing torch march in Charlottesville, Virginia. Hundreds of white nationalists march on the campus of the University of Virginia. Recorded in this documentary by the news outlet Vice, wielding torches, chanting racist slogans. Jews will not replace us! Including one slogan that was a notorious Nazi reference. A prelude to what happened the next day. The so-called Unite the Right rally on Saturday, August 12th. White supremacists clashing with counter-protesters. A car driven by a white nationalist rammed into a crowd of protesters, killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer. It was very traumatic. It has been difficult for many of us to come back to these places without being, without remembering the trauma that those days inflicted. Tonight, three white nationalists involved in that August 11th torch march facing justice in Charlottesville. Will Zachary Smith, Tyler Bradley Dykes, and Dallas Medina, all charged with burning an object with intent to intimidate, a felony. One of the men, Will Zachary Smith, is also charged with violating a statute that makes it illegal to maliciously release a chemical irritant such as tear gas. In the courtroom today, Dykes was denied bond. Presiding Judge Claude Worrell said, quote, the court can't believe you will be on good behavior. Citing incidents the prosecutor said showed Dykes has engaged in anti-Semitic behavior since 2017. The judge granted an attorney's request to reschedule Will Zachary Smith's hearing to May 3rd. Nearly six years after the torch march and the infamous rally the next day, many wonder why these charges are coming now. It takes time to investigate. It takes time to nail down all of the facts. So we can imagine that the investigation would take some time. The county's former Commonwealth's attorney declined to pursue charges related to the August 2017 demonstrations when he was in office. University of Virginia law professor Ann Coughlin says both the defense and prosecutors will have strategic decisions to make about their arguments. 
the defense may try to argue that their conduct was no more than political speech and therefore it's protected by the First Amendment. And the prosecutor, of course, will say, no, you crossed the line from protected speech and you committed conduct that was threatening and you did that with the intent to terrify and intimidate other people. None of the three defendants charged in this case have yet entered a plea. We reached out to the office of the lead prosecutor, the Commonwealth's attorney, James Hingley, to ask if he intends to pursue charges against any of the hundreds of others who took part in that torch march in 2017 or the supremacist rally the next day. We've not heard back on that. Jake? And there was a dramatic moment in, in court today. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Right, Jake. The elderly father of one of the defendants, the defendant Tyler Bradley Dykes, his elderly father came in to testify today, trying to build some trust with the judge, talking about his son's job and that he would live at home if he was uh, allowed out on bond. Then the prosecutor cross-examined the elderly father and laid out a string of alleged anti-Semitic and possibly illegal things that this man had done since 2017 and asked this elderly father if he knew about any of it. The father said he did not, and that was part of the reason that the judge did not grant bond. The father looked really heartbroken and shocked by all of it. Jake. Brian Todd in Charlottesville, thanks so much. Also on our national lead, someone's sick idea of a prank killed a young woman in Colorado. The victim was 20-year-old Alexa Bartel. Authorities say uh, that the individuals threw a large rock at her car windshield, and that ended up killing her. This happened Wednesday night around 10 near Boulder, just outside Denver. That same night, someone threw... Rocks at four other drivers hitting their windshields. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office says Alexa Bartel was on the phone with a friend when the rock hit her car. When the call went, then went silent, her friend tracked Bartel's phone and found the 20-year-old dead. Authorities believe the culprit was in a light-colored pickup truck or SUV. They're asking the public for help tracking down this person. Coming up, the accusations against a Republican lawmaker in Tennessee. That's right, a Republican lawmaker, his own party, Said nothing of it when calling out Democrats for violating the rules on decorum, you might remember. In our politics lead, those who work in glass state houses shouldn't throw stones. A Republican Tennessee House member who voted to expel those three Democratic members for breaking House decorum rules, you might remember, has just resigned over breaking House harassment rules. Scotty Campbell's resignation came hours after Nashville TV station WTVF confronted him about sexual harassment allegations involving a legislative intern. But I did not know that a workplace policy could be enforced when you're not at work. Oh, okay. Well, it turns out it can. Scotty Campbell had been under investigation by the Statehouse Ethics Subcommittee. And its report had been released since March 29th. That's one week before Campbell and other Republicans voted to expel the Tennessee Three for their protest, their unruly protest on the House floor over gun reform. CNN's Ryan Young is with me now. Ryan, uh, what does Scotty Campbell have to say about all this? Well, Jake, as you can imagine, he's not saying much in this case, especially after all this has sort of played out. And of course, like you just indicated, it was March 29th when this complaint came in from an intern. And... They were uh, investigating this, and they were able to substantiate some of the claims here. And he said he didn't realize having consensual conversation with two adults um, away from the state capitol could be something that could get him into trouble. But if in the language in this that we can't even report all of it because WTVS has this uh, investigation, something that's very salacious. In fact, take a listen to the confrontation that happened with that state lawmaker and the reporter. 
They broke the house rules of decorum. And you broke the, the house policies regarding sexual harassment, according to this letter. I had a consensual conversation with adults. And when the adults informed me that we could talk and that there weren't guardrails, I talked to who I thought were my friends. Jay, clearly in life, when you're someone's a superior, uh, there are guardrails at all times. And after that uh, interview, there was this simple resignation letter that came out 218 yesterday. And there's so many questions about this. We'll also say that subcommittee is sort of sealed. So we'll share with this to you. This says discrimination, harassment in any form will not be tolerated. And this says in accordance with the policy and Rule 82, no further information concerning this complaint will be released. And so what we do know was all this stuff was playing out in the state house last week. And as you saw, and they were talking about the Tennessee three and that violation that happened on the state floor. This subcommittee was actually investigating him for these complaints against these two young ladies, interns. And in the end, it ended up with this resignation, which no one's going to fill in the gaps with exactly what was said, how it was said and when it was said, Jake. So a lot of questions there in Tennessee about what happens next. But obviously, this lawmaker has now had to resign. But just to be clear, uh, he's not he's not denying that he said inappropriate things to these two young women, these interns, sexually inappropriate things. It's just that he's just that he's saying like, oh, but I didn't say it at the actual Tennessee State House. Yeah, not only is he not denying it, he said he said something to two friends and went on in that report to even say the next time if he were to talk to an intern, he would record the conversation. Of course, later on, he then resigned, Jake. So obviously he's not denying that he may have said some inappropriate things. It's funny what offends some people and what doesn't offend them at the same time. Interesting. Ryan Young, thanks so much. As promised, CNN staying on top of the fallout from that toxic train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio. Coming up, the major financial burden people there may now have to face if they want to move away from the area so sullied. I'll ask Ohio Governor Mike DeWine about it all. That's coming up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Republican state lawmakers are refusing to let a Democratic state rep who is transgender speak after she made a passionate plea against a bill that would ban hormone treatments and surgery for transgender minors in the state of Montana. That state rep, Zoe Zephyr, will join us live. Plus, should cars be recalled because they're able to be stolen easily? Well, that's what several attorneys general are demanding. Is your car on this list? And leading this hour, the U.S. Supreme Court on the clock. The justices have until 11.59 Eastern this evening to decide the future of a widely used abortion pill, the most crucial abortion case since the court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. At stake, the availability of mifepristone, the first in a two-drug regimen used to end pregnancies up to 10 weeks. That pill is used in about half of the abortions across the U.S. It's also prescribed after miscarriages and for some women experiencing menopause. If the pill is restricted or banned in the U.S., Canadian officials now say they are prepared to provide access to the pill to Americans. Let's get straight to CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Joan, when do we expect to hear from the court and and what are the options here? Good evening, Jake. We're now at the normal close of business. We do not have an order yet from the court, so clearly something is not going smoothly. It was just one week ago that Justice Alito said that they could decide this by Wednesday night. Then he came back and bought 48 more hours, and here we are closing in on that deadline of 11.59 p.m. 
Their main options, Jake, either grant the Biden administration request or deny it. And what the Biden administration, joined by drug manufacturer Danko, wants is to preserve the availability of Mifepristone as it is now. Up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, the ability for women to get it through the mail after consulting with medical personnel rather than have to pick it up in person, and the availability also of a generic. Those are things that lower courts had, had lifted, and if the justices do not grant the Biden administration request, those restrictions will go into place at 11.59 tonight. So grant or deny or do something in between. And the Biden administration says if the justices try to get fancy with some regulations and not other regulations, they'll just be uh, creating havoc across the country uh, for not just this uh, abortion medication, but for all FDA approval of existing and new drugs. Jake? Joan, just quickly, is yeah. it possible that they did come to a conclusion and they just want to get the hell out of town before uh, releasing it? No. It's possible, though, that they did come to a conclusion and someone is writing. They could have five justices already for either grant or deny, and someone who is angry about how that outcome is going is, is writing a dissenting statement. And I have known times where the justices went, frankly, to 1, 2, 3 a.m. in the morning waiting for that dissent. But tonight they can only go to 11.59. And if somebody is indeed writing a dissent uh, to a five-justice majority opinion right now, uh, then we won't see it until that individual is done writing. Well, I think it's guaranteed that somebody is writing an angry dissent, uh, no matter what. Joan Biskupic, thank right. you so much. Turning now to our pop culture lead moments ago, prosecutors officially dropped charges against actor Alec Baldwin, citing new evidence in the case. Baldwin, as you might recall, was facing involuntary manslaughter charges after the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins after a gun he was holding went off during rehearsals for the movie Rust. And now a source says... The drop charges may be due to modifications to the firing mechanism in that gun. I want to bring in CNN entertainment reporter Chloe Malas. And, and Chloe, what, what happened in the, in the hearing today? Well, listen, just moments ago, that status hearing wrapped, and it looks as though the, the trial hearing that was set to start May 3rd, the preliminary hearing, has now been moved to August so that the district attorney in New Mexico, that they can finish their investigation. Because remember, they dismissed the charges, Jake, um, but said that they were leaving it open uh, to finish up their investigation. But this is a big moment for Alec Baldwin's legal team because today the court paperwork was officially filed that the charges are dismissed for now. And Chloe, uh, you're hearing some new details. Yes. So, Jake, so we have two sources telling CNN, one telling me, one telling CNN's Josh Campbell, that the DA got new evidence. And that is what led to this dismissal, this, you know, kind of shocking moment for these charges that were just filed in January to be dismissed just two and a half months later that had to do with the gun. Modifications to the gun that Alec Baldwin was holding on the set of Rust, meaning that potentially those modifications could mean that the gun might have fired a bullet without Alec pulling the trigger. The same thing that Alec Baldwin has maintained in interviews to me and ABC News. Take a listen. I never once said, never, that the gun went off in my hand automatically. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. So this could mean, Jake, that it goes against everything the FBI ballistics report said when they took that gun, they examined that gun for months and they came back and they said the only way that this prop gun could have fired around would be if someone pulled the trigger. So if there were modifications done to the gun by who we don't know, but potentially that will come out in the DA's investigation, you know, that 
clears Alec Baldwin, right? Because there is, um, you know, evidence outside of what has just happened. So this is new. This is developing. And we are going to stay on this. And hopefully we're going to have more information very soon. But as of now, Hannah Gutierrez, read the armor on set. She still faces two counts of manslaughter and up to 18 months in prison. Jake. All right, Chloe Malas, thank you so much. Joining us to discuss CNN senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Laura Coates. And, and Laura, do you, just to start off, do you think the high-profile nature of the shooting might have caused initially prosecutors to charge Alec Baldwin uh, even if they didn't have a solid case? Because it works both ways, right? Sometimes people are so powerful they avoid mm-hmm. charges, and sometimes they're so powerful prosecutors want to be sure that they're not seen as bending over to power, and they might get... Uh, overexcited. You know, the celebrity status put the huge spotlight on this case and amps the pressure to be very, very comprehensive in your investigation. I will also say that there was certainly a little bit of that feeling when the DA wrote something about his big fancy lawyers and tried to point to celebrity as a way of why his defense was as it was. So it could be a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, you're still talking about a case involves the loss of a human life on a movie set. So whether it was Alec Baldwin who was the one who did it or somebody else, It was the idea here that there was going to be a focus on this particular instance. So special prosecutors say that this decision does not clear Baldwin uh, of criminal culpability and that charges may still be refiled. Do you take that seriously? Well, what they're pointing to is that it was dismissed without prejudice. If it was with prejudice, it would mean no one can bring this case again. You've done something wrong, so egregious, or there is something so exculpatory as to say no one ought to ever bring this case. So they're leaving themselves a little bit of a window. It might be a bit of a saving of the face, but remember the process here. You had one prosecutor who stepped down, another one who stepped down, two now special prosecutors who are in this place who have now said something has come to light to show us that we cannot bring this case or follow this timeline. I think the notion of culpability, though, is interesting use of words. Not guilt, but culpability. There are still civil suits that are happening. He settled one with the widow and the son. There is one ongoing, I believe, with the sister and mother of the um, of the cinematographer for loss of consortium, meaning loss of opportunities to bond or spend time with or love in the presence of somebody. And so there is a combination of those things. So the word choice here is so important. But can you imagine a jury having this case one day and seeing the different iterations of the prosecutorial frontier and saying, well, now this is a winner, something has changed. And to the point that Chloe made, remember, if a gun was modified in some way, it might explain why the armorer has not yet had her cases and her charges yet dismissed. That is the person on the set whose job it is to ensure that what is handed to the actor or whoever is going to handle the weapon, that it's safe, secure, and according to the guidelines. If there's a modification, then that will be very interesting. But remember, he was also focused on because he was a producer. And so right. there must be a disconnect if charges have been dropped between what he was responsible for and what ultimately happened. Interesting. So he might be culpable for a lesser charge because he hired the armorer who was theoretically not trained enough. I mean, that could be a charge. It could be a, a civil part of a civil lawsuit. Right now, the criminal charges have been dismissed without prejudice, but right. it's unlikely they would revisit that very notion. But it's always possible in a civil world that culpability, which is a different standard than, say, beyond a reasonable doubt criminally, right. could rear its head. Interesting. Laura Coates, thanks so much. How do you sell a home next to a toxic train derailment? CNN checks in with the people of East Palestine, Ohio, months after the train wreck. Stay with us. In our national lead, it has been nearly three months since that disastrous, toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, 
residents there are still struggling to decide whether to leave or stay. Some so desperate to get out, they're willing to sell their homes for far less than what they're worth. Others, as CNN's Jason Carroll reports for us now, are trying to convince people and businesses to stay. Throughout East Palestine, Ohio, there are signs of trouble for homeowners looking to leave. It's been a process and it's been a nightmare. And we were the guinea pigs for my realtor because she wasn't even sure what was going to happen. Melissa Henry's home that she remodeled sits about a mile from where the Norfolk Southern train derailed in February, leading to a release of toxic chemicals from the overturned cars. She was thinking of moving before the accident, but after it happened and her family started experiencing symptoms, she wanted out. Me and my youngest son have had bloody noses. I couldn't tell you how many times, and we've never had bloody noses. She put her home on the market weeks after the derailment for $150,000. The first offer I had on my house was 50, 000, almost 50000 below what I asked for. It. That was like a stab to the gut. The low balls continued. Last week, Henry finally accepted an offer 25000 below asking, which she says leaves the family very little. Do you feel like in some way you should be compensated? Absolutely. I think everybody in this town who wants to move, Norfolk, should pay for them to move. There should, we shouldn't be forced to stay somewhere we don't feel comfortable, we don't feel safe. As far as right now, yeah, the, the bloom is off the rose a little bit, but we will see. I, we just don't know. Harry Hoffmeister has been selling real estate in the area for about 40 years and says sellers may have to accept less money or wait longer for homes to sell. He says it's too soon to tell just how much of a hit home prices have taken in East Palestine, given Norfolk Southern's derailment and other factors, such as a struggling economy and rising interest rates. I think they need to make things right. How you, how you possibly determine what kind of loss is attributed to that or not, that's somebody else's department. Since the derailment, Norfolk Southern CEO has repeatedly been pressed on the issue. Will you commit to ensuring that these families, these innocent families, do not lose their life savings in their homes and small businesses. The right thing to do is to say, yes, we will. Senator, I'm committed to doing what's right for the community. This week, when we asked for more specifics, the rail company's spokesman referred us to this previous statement. We also know residents are worried about their home values. We understand these concerns. We are committed to working with the community to provide tailored protection for home sellers if their property loses value due to the impact of the derailment. What this tailored commitment might entail, though, remains unclear. I would say that I believe Norfolk Southern is doing what they can at the moment. Diana Elzer owns a popular hot dog stand in town and lives less than a mile from the derailment. She's an example of a divide here between those who want to leave and be compensated and people like her who want to stay. Why are you yelling at people that are still here trying to make sure the town doesn't die in the meantime? Because if all our small businesses go away, the town will die. Caught in the middle of it all, people like Vanessa Kastanek and her three-year-old son. I do kind of want to get out of town, you know, just for his sake, just in case, just to be safe. Kastanek says she has little resources and fewer places to turn for help. You know, I can't just pick up and leave like most people can. And um, uh, so, you know, I kind of I am kind of just, you know, a little stuck. 
So again, Jake, what is still unclear, even after all this time, is how some homeowners here are going to be compensated for their losses. It's still basically an, an unanswered question for many of them. Meanwhile, as you look around town and look at some of the front yards, there are slogans on signs there that read, East Palestine, get ready for the greatest comeback in American history. It's also very clear here, Jake, that some folks are just not ever going to give up. Jake. All right, Jerry. Jason Carroll in East Palestine, Ohio. Thank you so much for staying on the story. And let's bring in the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine. Uh, governor DeWine, good to see you as always. Um, so some homeowners and business owners, um, they're worried about how safe it is to stay there. And they're starting to, to leave, uh, essentially taking parts of uh, this small town's economy with them. Um, what are you doing, if anything, to, to try to get them to stay? Well, Jake, what we're doing to try to get them to stay is to give them all the facts that we have. We continue to test. Uh, just last week, for example, there was a concern expressed by some farmers. They're growing a crop. Uh, one farmer, is, we went out to his field. He was growing you know, winter wheat, which is now starting to really, really grow. And uh, we took samples of that. And we're going to get that evidence back. We're going to continue to test the water. We're going to continue to test soil. We're going to continue to test the air. Uh, so I think those are th positive things that we can we can do. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I was listening to at least part of your report, and I had a meeting uh, in, the, in the governor's residence uh, in Columbus uh, just several days ago uh, with the CEO, uh, Alan Shaw. And one of the things that I said to him is that if people sell their house and they do not get what that house was worth before uh, the train wreck, I think you owe them the difference. And that, that really, uh, I think, is, is, is my position. And I think, candidly, uh, they may be willing to do that or they will do it. I expect them to do that. You expect them to do uh, that. We want we them just, to do that. But, like, yeah. to be completely candid, whether or not it's in the town hall we did with Mr. Shaw or the congressional testimony, he doesn't say, I'm going to do that. He says yeah. things like, oh, we're going to do well, right by them. I mean, he, he's... I don't want to insult him, but he's pretty wormy about it. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I will say, and I'm not here, certainly here to defend him. That's not my position at all. Uh, but my position and my job is to, uh, you know, advocate for the people who live in the community. Uh, everything that we've asked them to pay for uh, so far, they have paid for. Um, and we expect them to continue to do that. We also had a discussion uh, again with him. I raised this issue uh, you know, a number of weeks ago about a fund. There needs to be a fund set up, uh, you know, fairly quickly so that people in the community who are concerned about uh, where they're going to be in five years or 10 years or 15 years, if they have cancer or something occurs because of the result of this crash, right. they need uh, to be assured. And so he did not disagree with that. In fact, he agreed with that. And so I expect there to be a fund set up. He's, he's in conversations with uh, our attorney general in Ohio, David Yost. So I think, you know, that's another thing that we can do to help assure the people in the community that we're going to do everything and that, you know, we're not going away. Yeah. His money, his money is not going to go away. Very, very important to people. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he can say as many nice things as he can to the powerful governor of Ohio, but I'd like to see him cutting some checks to these people, many of whom, as you know, well, still are. complain about health Jake, problems Jake. and headaches. Jake, look, let, let me give you kind of the, maybe a little more of the whole picture. 
we set up a clinic uh, very early on. We now worked uh, with East Liverpool Hospital to set up a permanent clinic in, in town that people can go there, they can get treated. Uh, it's a full clinic. Uh, it's going to not only help people who have uh, a concern or, or an ailment that they think comes from this train wreck, but it's also going to improve, the, frankly, uh, the quality of life in the community. It's an underserved community as far as uh, medical care. But when we have asked the, the railroad to do something, uh, every time I've asked them, they have done it. And so I fully expect them uh, to pay for the difference if someone is going to sell their house and it's under the amount that they would have got before the train wreck, I fully expect them to pay for that. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, thank you so much. Good to see you again, sir. Thanks, Jake. Now versus then, the challenges facing Joe Biden as he prepares to officially kick off his 2024 campaign. That's next. Look, I view myself as a bridge, not as anything else. There's an entire generation of leaders you saw stand behind me. They are the future of this country. That was March 2020. Not so much anymore, that sentiment. CNN's learned. President Biden is planning to formally announce his re-election bid on Tuesday of next week, four years to the day from when he kicked off his 2020 campaign, an important anniversary for the famously superstitious and sentimental Joseph Robinette Biden. Uh, let's discuss. Uh, so, Abby. Um, it was a long bridge. That was a long bridge. <laughs> it was right. a long bridge. <laughs> or is it a bridge to nowhere? <laughs> right. A very, very long bridge, like the, like the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Yeah, like the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, then the people on the, on the, I'm just thinking of the Buttigieg's and the Klobuchar's and all the people who dropped out and they all ran behind Joe Biden and boosted him so as to make sure that Bernie Sanders didn't get the nomination. What, what, what happens to them? Well, they wait. They continue to TikTok, wait. TikTok. I yeah. mean, I, I, I mean, the Buttigieg's of the world, he's in the Biden administration. Uh, Amy Klobuchar is probably going to continue to be a good soldier. Um, Democrats have lined up behind Joe Biden. You're not hearing as much complaining now as you used to hear, let's say, last summer, um, when things were really bad in terms of the, gri- the private griping that, started, that became more public. A lot of it has to do with the midterm performance in 2022. The other part of it is um, he started the year, remember, with that State of the Union address in which he really showed Democrats that he was willing to kind of take the fight Mm -hmm. to Republicans. And that matters, I think, a lot to the party. He also spent the first two years, and he's continually being criticized for this, but he spent the first two years basically tending to his gardens, making sure that his base was happy. And that was all about shoring up uh, the runway for a potential re-election bid. It's a great observation about the State of the Union because he was, to his credit, agile. He, you know, there was some booing, and then he basically played along with it, got Republicans to like uh, commit <laughs> through applause that they didn't want uh, Social Security or Medicare cuts. But one agile moment in a in a heavily scripted State of the Union address is not indicative of his overall performance. And look, there are a lot of Democrats still rather skittish. About the fact that he's 80, uh, he sometimes loses his train of thought, and on and on. Yeah, I mean, if you look at polling, a lot of Democrats, even if they like Joe Biden, are concerned about him running again. They raise concerns about his age. Although when asked, you know, would you vote for him against Republican X, a lot more say that they would. So I think the White House will point to that. You know, this is 
this is not a choice in a vacuum. It is a choice of two options. And I think the other thing that the White House really talks about is, you know, watch what he has done on the job. So are there moments when he stumbles? Yes. But has he passed a ton of legislation on Democratic priorities? Also, yes. I think another compelling point that his team has is that he's already beaten Trump once. So who's to say he couldn't do it again? Makes him probably the best person to take him on. Obviously, you know, we're presuming that Trump will be the nominee and polling right now shows that he's most likely to secure the nomination. So Biden can make that argument. You know, I've already taken him on before and voters chose to elect me. And, and in that, terms by the of way, Trump is the part also. that he that's actually the part, the argument that Biden himself likes the most. Well, and, 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 and look at this. Because uh, the Wall Street Journal has a new poll. Um, and despite the fact that we need to acknowledge, he has bad approval ratings, Joe Biden. President Biden has low approval ratings. But among voters who disapprove of how both Trump and Biden have handled their respective presidencies, Biden leads 54% to 15%. This is among people who don't like either Trump or Biden. And there are a lot of them. And they're going to be voting And Biden is up by nearly 40 points. Right. And Trump won the both haters against Hillary by 17. So Trump was up almost 20 in that crowd when he won, kind of won. And he's... He won. He won. I'm kidding. He won. He he lost the popular vote, though. But he He won. He's down by 40 among those folks. Now, Biden's best strategist is not... And they're all friends of mine. It's not Anita Dunn or Jen O'Malley Dillon or Mike Donnell or Steve Roschetti. It's Henny Youngman. The old comedian who said, how's your wife? He said, compared to what? Right. How's Biden compared to what? Well, thank goodness for the Democrats, he's compared to Donald Trump, who Democrats really don't like. And that's that's holding his team firmly in place. So, Sarah, voters who dislike both uh, Biden and Trump overwhelmingly prefer prefer Biden to Trump. You might think Republicans would see someone like Governor DeSantis as being a better option uh, and more electable, but only 41 percent say that about DeSantis compares to 31% who say uh, Trump's more electable. That's who Republican voters see as the most electable candidate. And DeSantis is, you know, he's up, but only by, only by 10. I mean, that's got to be a disappointing number, considering Donald Trump lost in 2020. His candidates help the Senate, the Democrats keep the Senate and keep the House majority for Republicans small in 2022, and on and on, not to mention 2018. Yeah, obviously, uh, DeSantis hasn't formally declared yet, but it's been kind of interesting to see his polling slip in the last couple of months. And I think in December, it looked really promising. And I think that, you know, looking at the polling now, DeSantis's big case is electability. But right now, it doesn't look like he's much more electable uh, compared to Trump to face Biden. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because he's gone uh, hard right going for the Trump base or... Uh, is there another reason? I mean, one thing is just that Trump's support is so durable. That yeah. The people Trump love voters, him. People, yep. like, the, the people who love him love him. Yep. It seems like our latest polling shows that some people have come back to him. His numbers have improved, some with women and some other groups. Uh, so part of it is that DeSantis hasn't really been able to cut into that support at all. And that's, I mean, that's a big issue for him. And also, I have to say, like, people ha- still haven't... People, the more they watched Trump, the less they liked him. And he's still kept a fairly low profile so far. If he gets the nomination, people are going to see, oh, yeah, that's that's right. Lots of drama. Yeah, I mean, I think the f- time is a huge function here. I mean, first of all, actually, DeSantis is not that well known among just sort of people who are out in the world living their lives. So I think there's probably a little bit of room for him to grow. Uh, I also think you just have to kind of look at DeSantis's profile and how different 
really? Is he from Trump? And that's actually something he's trying to sort out. He's making an argument that he's basically the same as Trump, except a little less messy. And I just don't know if that's enough of a differentiator for people uh, who don't like Trump very much to basically kind of jump ship entirely and go to DeSantis. He is bad at this. Trump, who I don't like, he has great performance skills, though. Donald Trump does. Great performance skills. DeSantis, I, I mean, he stinks at this. I mean, even the SpaceX Starship cleared the launch pad before it exploded. This guy's exploding before he even gets well, to the launch pad. It's still pretty. It's still early. DeSantis is still DeSantis the only is other Republican with is taken these polling numbers. You, you cannot go after Trump and just get out the gate and not be prepared for actually some pretty obvious things that might come your way. How are you different from Trump? What is your view on Ukraine? What is your view on how are you going to position yourself on abortion? And it seems like a lot of these things, maybe they've thought about it, but he hasn't executed the answer. Let's not forget all of the House Republicans from Florida that Trump got to endorse him. (laughs) Most so many of them this week uh, when when DeSantis was coming to Washington. Thanks to all. And you know what? If you didn't get enough Abby Phillip just now, and honestly, who did? She's going to host Inside Politics Sunday. That's every Sunday morning. At 11 a.m. Eastern, only here on CNN Inside Politics Sunday with Abby Phillip. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to a transgender Democratic lawmaker in Montana who's been silenced by her fellow Republicans lawmakers. Stay with us. His body should be ashamed. In our politics lead today, crowds gathered at the Minnesota State Capitol after the Minnesota State Senate passed one of three bills to support health care for transgender individuals. But this is not the norm in state legislatures across the country. At least 417 uh, anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced so far this year. It's a new record, many of them directly targeting the nearly 2 million transgender people in the U.S. uh, at a time when one in four trans adults say they've been physically attacked, according to a Washington Post survey. In the last few weeks, Idaho's governor signed a bill restricting transgender students from using school bathrooms that align with their gender identities. Kentucky lawmakers overrode the governor's veto and passed a sweeping bill that would ban transition-related health care for trans children. Tennessee faces a lawsuit to block its transgender health care ban. And in Montana, the Republican-led legislature passed amendments to enact barring children from receiving access to health care, such as puberty blockers. Before that bill passed the Montana House, however, the state's first openly transgender legislator, Zoe Zephyr criticized it and the legislators voting for it on the House floor. If you are forcing a trans child to go through puberty when they are trans, that is tantamount to torture. And this body should be ashamed. Only thing I will say is if, I, if you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. Now the Montana Freedom Caucus is calling for Zephyr's censure, claiming she tried to shame the legislative body and used inappropriate language, all the while they referred to uh, the representative by the wrong pronoun. Plus, the Republican House Speaker has refused to recognize Zephyr on the House floor since Tuesday. Montana Democratic State lawmaker Zoe Zephyr uh, joins us now. Um, Your understanding is that rather than a former censure, a formal censure, the Republican Speaker of the House is just going to continue to refuse to acknowledge you on the House floor for the rest of the session, so you won't be able to participate in debate on, on any legislation? Is, is that right, and how do you plan to work around it? 
Speaker Aguirre has stated that he's not going to recognize me on any legislation, regardless of topic. And what I will say is I was elected on behalf of my constituents to come here and debate bills and have the hard discussions. And I will punch in on every bill that my community would want me to speak on. Uh, and what the speaker does with that is uh, up to him. So let's talk about um, what you said, because, uh, you know, I think the Montana Freedom Caucus is, is correct that you tried, to, you tried to shame the legislative body. I'm not judging whether that was right or wrong, but you definitely were. Why do you think it is tantamount uh, to torture? Uh, why do you think that lawmakers who vote against allowing trans kids or kids who identify as a different gender than the one they were assigned at birth, uh, having puberty blockers, for example, why would that cause there to be blood on their hands? So I know as a trans person, the joy and how we come alive uh, when we are allowed to transition. And I know the pain that comes with not being able to transition. Um, Also in terms of blood on their hands, I have lost several trans friends to suicide this year. I have had trans family members tell me, or trans uh, Montanans and their parents tell me about suicide attempts in their family, including one trans teenager who attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of these anti-trans bills. That's the impact that this legislation has, and that's why I rose to defend my community and hold the Republicans accountable for their actions. So... Obviously, a lot of opposition to the transgender community is rooted in ignorance and bigotry, without question. What might you say to somebody who says, look, there just isn't enough research on uh, trans kids getting these procedures done, whether it's puberty blockers or, you know, a more um, severe step, uh, such as a, a sex reassignment surgery. And sometimes it happens every now and then that somebody regrets it. Uh, and we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. What would your message be to that person? I would say first and foremost, we acknowledge when it comes to other procedures, any other type of medical care, we go with the recommendations of the major medical associations, and every major medical association says that gender-affirming care is important. It's life-saving for trans people. And when it comes to people saying, well, there's some person may regret, there may be a detransitioner down the line, You look at something like knee surgeries that have a huge 5% um, regret rate. The regret rate for transition is minimal. The regret rate for gender-affirming surgeries is less than 1%. Um, This care saves lives. We know it. We know it reduces suicidality. We know the regret rate is minimal. This care is important, and my community needs access to it. So in addition to the the people, uh, the legislators across the country trying to stop the um, transgender healthcare, the the puberty blockers and the like, uh, from people under 18. There is also a movement to prevent anyone, including adults, um, from from getting access to that kind of surgery. And there was an interesting moment in Missouri this week. I'm sure you were focused on um, Montana, but but I don't know if you saw it or not. But the Republican attorney general is trying to make make Missouri the first state to restrict transgender healthcare for adults. Um, And his own Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft, a very conservative Republican, said he doesn't support uh, hormone therapies. He doesn't support uh, gender surgeries. But he said, I wouldn't want to be the attorney that tries to defend this ban on adults getting it. And I thought that was interesting. I wondered if you saw it and what you thought of it. 
So I think it's important to acknowledge the way in which these attacks have progressed. This the attacks on trans rights began um, with uh, attempts to limit trans athletes in sports. And as we're seeing that conversation begin at the federal level as well. And the folks who want to strip trans people of their rights, as Michael Knowles said, uh, eliminate trans people from public existence entirely. They're not going to stop with a sports ban. Their goal is to create more and more policies that limit trans people's access to the care we need. And that's why you're seeing some states say a youth ban, but they're looking to move the needle. And that's why you see what you saw in Missouri. It's why you see Florida's limits on or law that allowed for trans children to be removed from their parents. Um, the attacks are going to continue to escalate until we stand up and stop them. Montana state lawmaker uh, Zoe Zephyr, a Democrat, thank you so much for talking to us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Coming up, why whales could help reverse the climate crisis. CNN's Bill Weir takes a look at some creative solutions to reverse the climate crisis. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, F. F is the grade for the planet's yearly checkup. Congratulations, everyone. 2022 saw climate records on every continent, according to the World Meteorologist Organization's Meteorological Organization's annual report. So, so how do you solve an enormous problem such as climate change? Well, as CNN's Bill Weir discovered, you got, you got to stop feeding Godzilla and bury it. While he was studying robotic engineering at Dartmouth and Earth systems at Columbia, he realized a man-made monster was destroying his beloved Gulf of Maine warming it up at a rate now faster than 95% of the rest of the world. It's a Godzilla. There's this thing out there and it's like ruining everything that we love, right? All the good stuff is getting ruined. All the stuff that's free and fun. It's burning forests down, it's stealing our fish. It's devastating our crops, it's hurting our farmers. Get mad and go, go kill that thing, right? And right there, on a dock in Maine, Marty's metaphor is a light bulb moment for me. A whole new way to think about a giant problem that began when people figured out how to move lots and lots of carbon, that stuff of ancient life, from the slow cycle locked in rock and under oceans into the fast cycle in the seawater and the sky. And we've moved so much carbon, that monster now weighs a trillion tons, give or take more than every living thing on Earth. So not only do we have to stop making the monster bigger, we have to catch it, chop it up, and bury the pieces back into the slow cycle with something called carbon removal. Removal's chopping Godzilla down. We got this 400-foot-tall lizard, and we're just chopping that thing down. That's what removal is. So, Bill, for CNN's The Whole Story, How to Unscrew the Planet, which is going to air Sunday night, you focused on some of the, of the problem solvers. What did you find? Well, then Marty, you know, is one of the guys who want to unscrew a planet uh, by harnessing the, the natural powers, biomimicry. He uses a kelp, giant seaweed, uh, on buoys in the North Atlantic to capture carbon and then sink them to the bottom. Also, oyster farms. We met people who use machines to pull it out of thin air and inject it into rock or scoop up field waste, turn it into oil, put it back into old oil wells. Today, President Biden actually uh, it looks like we got news. He's going to try to crack down on power plant emissions the way he did tailpipes recently. That could further incentivize uh, this this industry, carbon 
uh, industry as well. That'll end up in court before that happens. But the longer any sort of serious decarbonization, you know, drags out, the bigger the need to chop down Godzilla and bury it as soon as humanly possible. All right. I can't wait to see your report. The, and you can see Bill Weir's The Whole Story, How to Unscrew the Planet, this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on CNN on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, our great new magazine show. Don't miss it. Let's bring in CNN's Wolf Blitzer, who's just back from Poland for the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And Wolf, I was talking with Dana earlier. Both of you lost uh, ancestors uh, at Auschwitz uh, during the Holocaust. Uh, And it sounds like a a remarkably uh, sad and moving and important visit. It was really, really personally very significant for Dana and for me uh, because we did lose uh, grandparents, great-grandparents, during the course of the Holocaust. And it was just so, so powerful to experience what we did, the March of the Living, the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And and we're going to take our viewers, Jake, along on what was truly one of the most meaningful assignments of my career. Our colleague, Dana, and I, we went to Poland to take part in events marking, as you point out, 80 years since the Jewish uprising against the Nazi occupiers in the Warsaw Ghetto. All four of my grandparents and two of Dana's great-grandparents were killed in the Holocaust. Together, Dan and I, we walked the grounds of the notorious Nazi death camp at Auschwitz, also at nearby Birkenau. We even went into the gas chamber, where I believe my paternal grandparents were murdered. It was so emotional for both of us, and I hope everyone will be watching the Situation Room, because as you know, Jake, it is so important to educate people about this horrific chapter in the history of the world, a chapter we must never forget. No, indeed. It's so important. And I still see people on Twitter and social media talking about the important special you did the last time uh, you went back to Auschwitz to talk about that. Uh, So I'm sure this is going to be just as moving. How how powerful and how how important. Um, Thanks so much for sharing some of that. You can only imagine being inside a gas chamber uh, at Auschwitz and knowing that your grandparents were were killed there. No, Dana told me the story about how the the tour guide figured out when, where, and why it was this gas chamber. Amazing and and awful. Uh, Well, thanks so much. We're going to look for that just a few minutes in the Situation Room. Still ahead on the lead, the push to recall thousands of vehicles because they're easy to steal. Is your car on the list? In our money lead today, a coalition of attorneys general from across the country are calling for certain Hyundais and Kias to be recalled. Why? because they're too easy to steal. The car thefts started to rise after TikTok videos showed just how easy it is to start one of these cars without a key. And now these attorneys general say the companies have failed to take adequate steps to reduce the number of thefts of the cars made between 2011 and 2022. It's not clear if any actions are going to be taken. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says this isn't the sort of thing for which the agency could demand a recall. This Sunday on State of the Union, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, Democratic Senator from Minnesota Amy Klobuchar with Dana Bash. It's at 9 a.m. and noon, only on CNN. Till then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting there waiting for you like a delicious bag of Bucky's Beaver Nuggets. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you Monday. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.